Hello, and welcome to this Real Deals ESG podcast hosted in association with JTC. I'm your host, Nicholas Neveling, and on today's program, we are going to be taking a detailed look into what ESG means for investment committee boards. Environmental, social, and governance factors have taken a central role in business decisions, and ESG's influence now extends to where investors are directing capital, how businesses interact with counterparties, and how consumers behave and spend. What then are the implications of ESG for investment committee boards? How should organizations report on ESG? And what does it mean for how investment firms operate and make decisions? To help me answer these very topical questions and share insight into how ESG interfaces with investment committees, I'm joined by two guests. My first guest is Marie Fitzpatrick, who is a senior director of fund services at JTC. And Marie has worked in the fund industry for more than 20 years. She works closely with JTC's private equity clients and is well-placed to provide insights into how the asset class is approaching ESG at investment committee level. Um, lovely to have you on the program, Marie. Uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover today. But to start us off, I just wanted to ask you, you know, when did you first see ESG start to gain serious traction in the private equity markets? And, and how have expectations and practice evolved since? Okay, thanks, Nick, for the introduction. Um, I guess within the funds industry itself, ESG probably came onto the radar as a serious topic over a decade ago. Albeit in 2013, circa only 8% of the private equity market had adopted an ESG strategy. However, today we have, we have seen serious traction on ESG being adopted and implemented as a strategy by numerous private equity fund managers. Conditions have changed dramatically. If a private equity fund manager today has not yet adopted an environmental, social and governance standards into their investment strategies, they are likely to be missing out on capital commitments from potential limited partners who have now included ESG as part of their onboarding due diligence questionnaire. Pressure from investors will only continue to build. Expectations from institutional investors have increased. We heard last September that many of the larger institutional investors voiced and pledged their commitments to mitigate climate change, ensuring that their own portfolios become carbon neutral by 2050. This type of transition will mean that their investment processes will need to be updated to ensure that this promise can be accomplished and indeed have an impact to which private equity managers they will choose to make future allocations of capital commitments to. In practice, we have seen ESG creeping to the investor reports by private equity managers. As part of the quarterly investor reporting, managers are including a section within their investment synopsis on impact reporting. This will be aligned to either the ESG framework outlined in the limited partnership agreement. It can include anything from job creation, unemployment statistics, diversity, equal opportunities, recycling policies, emission targets. Some of this data is being collected and reported on. JTC's US office is using a measure called the impact rate of return to capture this data on behalf of our clients, looking closely at social statistics in the geography of the underlying portfolio investments. Today, scientific reports of how the planet is healing itself after the global pandemic will only silence skeptics and strengthen the support that the case of embedding environmental, social and governance into private equity markets makes good business sense. We've saved millions of pounds as business travel is not viable. 
managers have adapted the video conference calls to host board meetings, make investment decisions, all proving that how business was conducted yesterday may not be the way that we need to transact tomorrow. It will be interesting to find out how today's pandemic may impact the environmental part as many of the institutional investors and fund managers will look to review their own ESG policy. Great. Well, Marie, thank you so much. I mean, it, it really sets the scene nicely. I think some very interesting points there about, you know, less than 10% of private equity managers reporting on it in, in any way 10 years ago. And now we sort of see it in, in, in the LPA and, and actually a, a factor that is, that is deciding whether you, you can, you know, re, you receive capital from, from an investor or not. So really interesting. And I think we'll, we'll jump onto a lot of those points later on in the discussion. We are also joined today by Alison Hampton who heads the responsible investment advisory firm, Almaverde Advisors. Alison was uh, previously with um, HG um, uh, before going on to do a, a master's um, covering some of the, the topics that we'll be discussing today, um, and then founded Almaverde around uh, 2017, I believe it was. Uh, Alison um, started out as a private equity lawyer, 25 years in the industry, um, in private practice and in-house roles. And she's uh, you know, very passionate about sustainability and helping clients to understand the impact they have and um, how to increase their positive contribution to society. Um, so, Alison, really lovely to have you. A very warm welcome. You know, in your experience, then, what have you sort of seen as some of the most challenging aspects of, of building ESG into the decision-making structures of private equity? You know, I think Marie just mentioned it, it's a very broad church. There's so many things to think about. And it's still relatively new if, if you consider that very few managers are really only reporting on this um, 10 years ago. So, you know, just what, what have some of your observations been over the years and, and how are managers trying to get their, their heads around this topic? Okay, thanks, Nicholas. It's a great question to, to think about. Um, Marie's completely right. For sure, you need to have um, the governance structures in place, the policies and the procedures and the processes um, for people to follow and build this into what they do. But actually, um, what, what I find time and again is these are not sufficient in themselves. Um, there's no point putting a policy in place if it doesn't actually embed itself into the DNA of a firm and start to become their business as usual. And absolutely key that I have found through both my academic research and my consulting is the, that level of integration into business as usual. And the sort of two key pushes for this, you know, absolutely essential, you've got to have the tone from the top it's got to be coming down and feeding into how investment committee sees deals and what people think is relevant. But it's also got to have the buy-in from the deal team as well. And that, that layer of executives throughout the firm needs to understand why these issues are material to value creation and should be part and parcel of everything they do. And that feeds right the way down into how individuals at a firm, how their performance is measured and assessed because there's no point saying ESG is really important if individuals are then measured simply on how many, how many deals they do and their financial value creation. It's got to be fed into that performance assessment metric and seen as part of the core competency of a deal professional. So one of the things when I advise LPs on how to assess a GP's integration, I say to them, uh, talk to the deal team members and ask them to explain um, what the material issues are that they come across in the sorts of deals they invest in and what sort of discussions they have at investment committee level 
to tease out the extent to which firms are really building this into the heart of how they perceive their investment strategy and their risk. Yeah, really, uh, some really interesting points there, Alison. I think some of the cultural and behavioural aspects are are probably the, the most the most difficult to to try and measure and, and the hardest to instill. But again, we'll, you know, we'll be coming back to a lot of uh, a lot of those points, I'm sure, later on in the in the discussion. Um, Maria, I just wondered if you had any thoughts on um, on what Alison said there about how you actually you know embed it in in, in the culture of a firm rather than just making it a uh, you know. A, a set of questions that have to be answered at the end of the year and you, you put a page in the annual report and it's taken care of. It sounds like things have definitely moved on and, and managers are trying to really make it, you know, part of their DNA, as Alison uh, explained. No, I, I would concur with that, Alison. I think that um, actually um, us as individuals and, and, and society on a whole, um, environmental issues and, and where products are coming from is more and more important. You know, our own electricity bills, how we manage our own households. So actually within a team, if you have a team that's aligned in terms of culture within an organization, it's gonna be far easier to bring them on the journey with you than to actually impose something. You want the team to believe and actually get the sense that it's not just the financial return, it's the value creation. And actually, you know, we are starting to see some evidence that ESG investment is actually increasing the financial return. So it's not just doing good as in terms of the society, the environment that we're living in, but it's actually creating higher returns than a manager that doesn't choose to implement an ESG strategy. Okay, yeah, thanks. That's so interesting, Marie. I know there's been a report out by Cambridge Associates, which has actually found data to that to that point, showing that good ESG actually uh, predicts um, our performance financially. Um, so, so very interesting. Um, okay, but look, we've um, we've introduced our guests, we've we've set the scene, and I really just wanted to dig into some of the themes that have been raised in a little bit more detail. Um, Marie, first, I wanted to come back to you, and this is just about picking your battles. It's something we've, we've chatted about um, already briefly. We've, it's been mentioned how ESG is such a broad topic. There's so many bases to try and cover. I don't think there's any real best practice about exactly the, the perfect way to do it for every single firm. So, so the guidance is still evolving constantly. How are fund managers deciding what to focus on um, and, and how do they direct their resources to make sure they're, they're doing ESG in, in the most appropriate way for, for their organizations, for their investments and, and, and indeed for their, for their LPs? Yeah, I guess every firm has just developed its own approach and, and you know, based their strategy on, on a blend of what fits with their culture and their own preferences. I mean, the funds manager has to not only balance its own company values, but it has the long-term considerations of the stakeholders too. So fund managers will need to look at not only their own environmental, social and governance strategies, but potentially three or four other angles, which would include the, the fund itself, so the investment parameters that they set out and they sold to the actual limited partners. The limited partners, and that group is continuously evolving and changing you know, what they deem to be essential criteria for an investment, um, notwithstanding the underlying portfolio companies that they invest into. A fund manager's own ESG plan should state what's important to them as a team, how they can adopt processes into their own business plan, set 
objectives that are achievable. I think it's important to note that operating sustainably can have cost benefits too. So to the bottom line of the P&L, as a fund, fund manager focuses on reducing their environmental footprint, they will also consume fewer resources and in turn incur less expense. So moving on in terms of if we break it down to what ESG actually means, the environmental social governance, we see a number of common sub factors that managers may choose to adopt in their own strategies. So environmental could be a mix of numerous things, the influence and waste, emissions, water, land use, biodiversity, energy, materials, all of which might have slightly different agendas. So a manager might decide they want to reduce, you know, or increase the water efficiency, so therefore reduce wastage around water. Like another um, admission reduction could be less air travel. So it could be only essential business air travel. They might change their ongoing future policies um, in order to actually become carbon neutral by 2015. Um, there's various other elements that they could consider to adopt under the social um, practice. So labour practices, um, equality, um, you know, diversity of staff. They might be looking at health and occupational aspects, safety at work. I mean, today's pandemic is yet again going to change the way that we operate. If we go into the office, how many people is deemed to be safe in a lift? social distancing. So there's all of these additional considerations that, and, and because of the world that we live in, it's a daily changing theme. So we've got health and wellness, product safety, corruption. So again, that can all be adopted into to elements that they might consider um, under the social aspect and governance, you know, competitive behaviour, but not predatory, responsible employment, hiring local staff. So when they're invested in a portfolio company, you know, where are they looking to actually create those jobs? Are they paying reasonable wages? There's so many elements to ESG that it's too hard for them to try and actually achieve them all. So they're going to have to sit down and actually evaluate what's important to not only them, but also their stakeholders on that side. You know, the funds that ESG issues are likely to be a combination of, you know, demands from the limited partners and the manager's own preference. It's likely the objectives will be incorporated into the limited partnership agreement, along with an indication on how they're going to measure their success and report the findings to the investor base. They may form a part of the investment approval process, increasing the number of managers today have funds that solely focus on impact investing strategies. The investors themselves, each limited partner, will have its own ESG objective and part of their due diligence performed on the, on the manager may make the investment decision on the manager's ESG policy. The value and importance that a limited partner places on ESG and the data it wants to collect can drive a fund manager's own agenda. We already know that at certain times in the market, a limited partner will influence the fund manager, um, especially when there's an economic downturn and they're desperate for money. So again, that kind of loops back to Alison's point earlier in terms of everyone must be aligned um, and adopting an ESG policy just to bring in um, you know, investors' capital commitment 
might not be sustainable long term. So it's a consideration to make on why they're actually adopted that. You've also got different types of limited partners out there. We've got the traditional investor. They're least probably compliant with ESG. They're interested in the financial return, um, you know, albeit they've got their corporate governance. So, you know, they want to make sure the fund's not doing anything to, that's wrong on a social or environmental arena. Whilst other limited partners are embracing ESG principles, they're looking for private equity fund managers to demonstrate they've adopted ESG principles across the investment chain value. They're seeking the value creation during the ownership of those underlying portfolio companies. And I guess the smallest pool of investors that we're seeing, but who are increasingly raising larger pools of funds, are the impact investors. And they're looking for private equity managers that have the sole goal of investing into companies that produce ESC style impact and market financial rate of return. I think in the case of the, you know, balancing the company's values with the, the broader long-term consideration globally with the ESG sphere, it also depends on the client, the unique consideration for ESG. So I think there's quite a lot to actually take into consideration when a manager is actually looking at what it should adopt, um, not only for their own values, but because of the wider stakeholders involved. Yeah, really interesting. Um, Alison, just coming in there, what is your sense? Is your sense that this is LP-led, um, where, where the LP sort of decide what their their ESG filters are and then the, the managers react accordingly or or are the LPs sort of looking, oh, there's a manager that's got a very good process. We like that, even if it's different from, you know, some some of the processes that, that other managers in our portfolio might be managing. I, I think there's been um, a real shift um, over the last five years um, to, in the extent to which LPs themselves have... Um, developed their own analysis of managers offerings um, and I think you go back five years ago they were content to hear that a manager was taking action and doing reasonable things I think now given their unique positioning to see across the broad universe of GPs they can see best practice um, and those those who are not quite so far advanced in their journey and, and they have developed their offering to be able to go to GPs and say you really need to improve in this particular area. And when it when it comes to picking your battles for GPs, um, I mean, as Marie says, the, the universe for ESG issues is, is immense. I mean, everything from cybersecurity through to your CO2 emissions. Um, so it's really important to focus on the material issues for the sorts of deals that you invest in. And um, what I advise GPs to do is to break it down into some core areas which are fundamentally important across all of their portfolio and there'll be differences for specific companies but one one area which i think regardless of what sort of business you're invested in that you now need to be looking at is climate resilience um, and a couple of years ago it was enough to be able to say to lps we don't think it's really appropriate for our portfolio we're going to focus on our cyber security and our health and well-being program or whatever it happens to be now, running into 2020, looking at government deadlines for reducing emissions and complying with the Paris commitments, every single business needs to understand what its exposure is to climate risk. Okay, that's interesting. So, so climate definitely emerging as, as a theme for all firms, irrespective yeah. of where they're based or what their strategy is. Um, and Marie, I mean, you mentioned earlier how, how the pandemic could change attitudes. Do you think 
we could see things like um, resilience of the supply chain or, or how you manage your employees suddenly, you know, being pushed up the agenda in, in the same way that that climate has. Uh, just wondered if you had any thoughts on, on what the next iteration could be after what we've just experienced. I think um, because of the pandemic, I think there, there will be a change on, um, you know, employees having to be in the office to conduct their mm -hmm. roles. Um, I'm not suggesting that, you know, no one's going to turn up in London tomorrow um, and actually um, do their job. But the reality is, um, you know, we've, we're almost sort of two months into lockdown and people are demonstrating that they can work effectively and efficiently for home. So there is a question on whether the office space or the entire office space is, is, mm -hmm. is still need, needed, whether companies can reduce the, the floor space that they've got in some of these major cities, reduce the number of people that are commuting, you know, whether it's by car, by train. Um, so there are questions around that. I mean, the pandemic is, is going to have an impact. Um, and it's, I guess, it will be down to each individual company on, on how they actually adapt that and, and, and see benefits. So if you had an ESG policy and you're concerned about climate change and you're concerned about emissions, you might be looking at actually what savings you could make by reduced office space, um, by reducing the carbon footprint. You might be thinking about, you know, the number of employees that are actually using public transport and, and again, the knock-on effect. So I do think there will be an impact. I do think that the world we knew yesterday um, is, is, is never going to be the same again. Mm -hmm. Can I come in there as well? Yeah, I, I, think, I, I think it's going to be a great marker for assessing GP's attitude towards ESG to see how they have um, directed their portfolio companies and what, what the portfolio companies have done during this pandemic, how they've treated employees, how they've treated their customers, how they've treated their supply chain. So I, I think going forwards, it's going to be really easy to see those who have embraced ESG attitudes, regardless of what they call it, mm -hmm. um, but fundamentally operating on responsible business principles and those that are not quite there yet. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah really interesting. We'll have to reconvene in, in about six months to see how much things are cha have changed, and and no doubt they would have. Um, Okay, uh, Alison, I just wanted to come, come back to you again um, on, on another point. Okay, let's assume uh, a manager has looked at, at, at sort of what the various ESG obligations and requirements are. They've, they've filtered down, you know, what's important to them, what's important to the investors. How do you go about um, translating that in the day-to-day -day business? I know you mentioned earlier that it has to go, it goes to culture, it goes to leadership, it goes to behavior in the deal team, maybe the people who aren't always as focused on ESG as, as you know, some of the LP facing professionals, you know, what do you do? Where do you start? How, how do you start getting that discipline through an organization um, to really think about this? Um, yeah, really interested in some of the work you've done, some of your thoughts. So that, that's, that's, that's a great question. So um, that goes to the heart of both the research that I did, the academic research that I did, and, and what I see in my consulting business. I think there are a number of common characteristics of the ways in which GPs that have really got this all act. Um, we've talked about the, the culture, getting the buy-in from the deal team and the tone from the top, which is absolutely essential. But there are a number of other things the GPs can do to make sure they've really embedded ESG into, um, into their DNA. 
Um, the first is ensuring they have processes which allow them to identify the material issues um, and the business case for making change early on. It's feeding it right the way in up front, almost into the point of origination, how they look at what they can do to a business. Because PE acquires businesses that have room for improvement. That's, that's the skill. And this is one of the key areas where they can come in and actually make improvements. So making sure that they're looking for those particular areas where an ESG lens is going to add value. And that, that then feeds into including ESG in the value creation plan. It shouldn't be an add-on, it should be part and parcel of how they're going to make their money in this business. I think signalling the commitment to making ESG changes really early on also helps when it comes to dealing with the management of a portfolio company. They want to be on board with this up front. Ideally, for the ones who are really successful, it's part of what gives them almost a competitive advantage um, in fortunate situations, if a management team knows that they're going to get the value of that expertise and focus on the ESG side of things as well. I think as a, as a critical step, um, you, can, you can do two key things in, in your business. I think one is you make ESG improvements um, the same as any other sort of improvement. So it's part of your value creation plan and it's managed and monitored in exactly the same way. And you also make it um, a, a reporting issue for the boards of all your portfolio companies. So it's part of the rhythm of what's important. And for management, they see that the investor is, is keen to see improvement in that area. And then the last thing you can do is remember the value of the halo effect for, for your portfolio. So share best practice amongst all your portfolio companies and allow them to learn and gain from the experiences that the other portfolio companies have had because that, that really powers up the rate of change that you can make. Okay, some really uh, very interesting steps on, on how to make this happen. And um, thank you, Alison. Um, just, just Marie, uh, quickly, how do you, how do you go about measuring ESG? It sounds like that would be a key thing for, for any manager following the steps that, that Alison has outlined. Um, it, you know, do you look at UN uh, principles of responsible investment? Is there a, a framework out there that, that sets those criteria in place for managers to overlay onto their organizations to make sure they are measuring this and, and you know, holding themselves accountable to, to what they're trying to achieve? I think actually within the private equity market, there isn't necessarily a consistent framework. There are certain like reporting requirements that people follow and the certain guidelines. Um, you know, in the G20 established the Green Finance Study Group, and from that we had the um, landmark Paris Agreement. Um, that kind of outlined strategies and presented the risks and opportunities. But in terms of actual reporting framework, the that really is bespoke to the manager. And I think, again, it, it has to be set to where the manager has actually decided what it wants to report on, what's it included. So whether it's a way of measure, measuring like the reduction of water waste or the reduction of emissions of its portfolio companies, whether it's a way of measuring job creation by actually looking at um, the portfolio company where it's geographically located, what the unemployment rate was at the beginning when it took ownership of that portfolio company, how that statistic has changed as the portfolio company has grown 
grown and they've actually developed new opportunities. I think there's um, there's a few things um, on that side of um, it that they can actually adapt into that. I mentioned earlier, um, you know, my US colleagues have something they call the impact rate of return. Um, and they do actually look um, at the statistics on the sort of um, that they're issued by the US government in, in terms of unemployment levels. And they report on, you know, the timing of when they actually acquired the company, what those unemployment levels were, whether there's actually been a reduction in unemployment. They look at the social statistics and whether the actual poverty in the area has actually improved and, and what other um, developments that they've actually can measure um, and maintain. But measuring some of these statistics is hard, albeit it's getting easier, and actually getting more data is easier. And it's easier actually now to, to send out an algorithm and actually collate that data. So, you know, as technology has um, improved, it's enabled um, managers to actually collate the data together and actually drop that into an investor report, whether it's as part of the investment synopsis, and actually sort of track that. Historically, the data wasn't there. People were not collecting that type of data. And if the fund's not necessarily set up from the outset, it's really, really hard to go back and prove that the fund has actually, you know, added and improved um, the society, the environment around it, and what it's actually done. So anyone that's actually considering reporting on um, impact investing or ESG as, as, as part of their quarterly investor reports, they need to think about what it is they've promised their investors they're going to deliver on, and they need to make sure that it can be measured, and then that needs to actually be built into the framework of how they're going to produce those reports. Okay, thanks, Marie. Uh, yeah, really interesting to hear how, how some firms are actually really drilling down and, and presenting comparable figures in their reports. And um, just before we move on, Alison, just, just on that quickly, um, is, is, is standardization something that would help? Would it be good to have a, uh, an ESG standard that's much like an accounting standard or some kind of framework that everybody is familiar with? Or, or is that not really helpful given how, how different managers you know, see this and, and, and how different managers have different strategies, as, as we mentioned earlier? I think there are a number of reporting frameworks out there that people can start to use. Um, like the GRI accounting reporting that a lot of corporates use. Um, there are some specific frameworks, for example, in, in real estate and infrastructure, there, there is the, the Gresby framework that people use. Um, and for fund managers themselves um, who are signed up to the UNPRI, there's the UNPRI reporting framework, which looks focuses on governance processes. I think there's quite a lot of interest in the LP community around having some sort of you know, required set of standard metrics, but that doesn't generally work for a range of GPs who are facing many, many different issues. And I think the best thing for GPs to do is to focus very carefully on the questions that they want to ask and what's going to make a difference to their portfolio companies. Because the, the fact of asking a question drives behavior. And you've got to ask a question where you're going to do something with the answer and it's going to be meaningful to help you in your value creation. And that's always the advice that I give is to sort of test what it is you're trying to get out of the data that you're asking for and how that is then going to help you drive an improvement. Okay, thanks Alison. Yeah, re really interesting and, and, and interesting how it, it still sounds like it's something that will remain bespoke to a degree, but, but that's a, 
that's perhaps a, a topic for, for another podcast. Um, th there was one last point that I, I wanted to close on. Um, and uh, Marie, if I could direct this to you. Uh, let's look at the investment committee then. What is their role in, in setting up the ESG framework? Um, and, you know, who takes responsibility for that? Should there be, uh, you know, an ESG side committee? Uh, should there be uh, an ESG officer? Um, just how do you really get that into the, you know, the governance of, of, of the fund and, and the investment committee? Um, you know, what have you seen in the industry? What do you think works? Um, what maybe doesn't work? Yeah, certainly. So for a private equity manager, the investment committee's role is one of leadership and decision making. So the investments under consideration need to match the investment criteria set out in the PPM or the limited partnership agreement. So ultimately, um, going back to Alison's point, a lot of this is going to be buying from the top down in, in terms of you know, the people that are on that investment committee need to be committed to the ESG policy of, of, of the firm. So the committee's role is to ensure that the opportunity meets all the investment criteria, including that of the ESG policy. Good corporate governance, professional ethics will mean that the investment committee will be set up to have a robust ESG framework aligned to the criteria of either the PPM or the limited partnership of the fund. The processes will be set and followed by the investment committee board, and it's their responsibility to ensure that the investment and opportunities are challenged and that they meet the parameters that have been set out in the framework. ESG is no longer a side thought for the investment committee. Sustainability, social purpose, good governance, all top of the agenda in supply chains and fund managers who are successfully ensuring their portfolio companies meet their own ESG requirements will want to reflect this and evidence this as part of their own corporate governance. Therefore, the robust framework that are needed for management to adhere, um, if they diversify from the investment strategy their limited partners have signed up to, it could be potentially problematic later. So, you know, if a fund manager has promised that it's going to comply with a certain ESG policy and it's going to look at, you know, the society and, and impact to improving, you know, bringing um, you know, higher economic turnaround by, I, I don't know, if it was focusing on retail, like the retail parts and stuff like that, bringing people to that area. It needs a way, as, as, as Alison alluded, to measure that. But when they're actually reviewing the investment opportunity, they need to make sure that the investment criteria can actually be ticked back to, to, to the initial parameters. So, you know, there's a number of criteria for how you weave like ESG into the investment process from the deal sourcing to right through to the exit and monitoring the actual investment during the time that it's actually held by the fund manager. The investment committee will need to sort of consider um, ESG issues is outlined, whether that be emissions and product safety, water use, labour practice, diversity and quality when, in, when they're screening the investment. So from the outset, they want to understand what it is they're getting involved in, how much that portfolio company is, um, you know, not aligned to their own policies, what they might need to do if they were going to consider that. So it's back again to the opportunities and risks around you know, ESG, a review of the current supply chain of that underlying investment might be conducted as part of the due diligence um, on whether they actually want to make that investment. Um, you know, the responsibility in, in terms of um, whether the 
the ESG is complied with does lie with the, the, the people at the top, the ones that are actually signing off on that investment. And they're going to want to actually assess the operational risks and, and opportunities. Not every potential investment that they look at will be a perfect fit, but it will be their decision to evaluate whether the, you know, by them acquiring that underlying portfolio company, they can work with that company and make significant improvements to change the supply chain or change the, their attitude to, 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 you know, wastage, whether that's, you know, um, carbon emissions or... So, you know, over time, I think that managers have built in ESG into the board meeting. Um, and it's, it's almost part of, I, I guess, today is it, it, it's almost part of the normal decisions those that have actually adopted ESG. Um, for JTC, um, you know, our motto is stronger together and this sort of applies both within and outside of the firm. By holding our management account on such matters, we're supporting each other and our clients in best practice. And equally, as a global listed firm, we have a serious part to play in influencing the effects that the industry has on the wider ESG issues. So it's important to us. When we sit there and actually conduct board meetings on behalf of our clients, it's probably one of the first topics on the agenda. Um, I think that actually, again, talking about the pandemic, but we have actually seen, you know, a real increase of people looking at every single item laid out on on the agendas whereas i think sometimes people be like yeah it's on the agenda that's great we've read it and it's not actually discussed at length but when we're saving time by not commuting um you know people are actually taking slightly more consideration and really diving into the detail of, of, of um areas like esg at the moment okay yeah and, and which is which is obviously very encouraging um, Alison, a lot of what Marie outlined there, I think, does dovetail with, with the points you raised earlier about um, really integrating it into the, the fabric of, of decision making within a firm. Um, but if I could play devil's advocate, is, is, there a, is there a role for an ESG champion on the investment committee, the ESG officer or, or the ESG committee? Or, or does that become counterproductive where you kind of have, you know, an us and them kind of feeling um yeah just curious on, on oh no that's that, that that's a great question because i think it's definitely a balancing act i mean what we've seen with with um a number of houses is they, they develop internal specialists and they have operating partners with expertise in different areas and absolutely i think there is a role for an esg expert within a firm who can provide support to portfolio companies um and and can help um, educate the deal team around the issues and be, a, be a, a go-to source of expertise, absolutely. And I think there's also um, a, a role for an ESG committee itself that can champion the engagement and drive these issues through. But as you said, critically, it's important that this isn't seen as a sort of, oh, well, it's all right, we don't need to, to deal with ESG as part of our day-to-day -day business because it's being done by the ESG committee. That absolutely doesn't work. These things have got to be integrated across and seen as part and parcel with just the ability to have a committee maybe dive into a little bit more detail and focus on things like, you know, the next push for reporting, the next thematic engagement that they're going to do across a portfolio and so forth. But it's got all got to come back internally to the investment committee driving that through and being something that the deal team see as part of what their job is to build better businesses. 
Alison, thank you. I think that that encapsulates much of what we've been discussing today. Um, so that just leaves me to say a big thank you to both my guests and also to everybody that's listening. And a big thank you to JTC for sponsoring today's session.